Our first speaker, Luke Staten, is a motivational speaker and performance coach. Luke started his life as a professional football player. He's had 18 caps for England, played alongside of Stephen Gerrard, Michael Owen, coached by the likes of Kenny Daglish and Roy Hodgson. He's worked for many companies such as EDF, Energy, Ping, Macmillan Cancer and Travelex. He's also work, he currently works with many football academies throughout England, including Chelsea Football Club, our local team Blackburn, Bolton, Millwall to mention a few. He's a TEDx speaker, the founder of the Next Generation programme. Please welcome to the stage, put your hands together for Luke Staten. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Just put your hand up if you've travelled from uh, the US to be here today. So they're going to be the ones that are going to get the room going because quite often I say this when I start a talk, you stand here and it's so English, isn't it? Throw the dice and it's just past the dice. Imagine what that would be like in America. They'd be throwing at people, wouldn't they? With loads of energy. And I was fortunate enough to travel to America to do some speeches out there and I was so overwhelmed with the reception. I remember standing there thinking, I'm not that good. <laughs> I'm not that good. They got me on stage and everybody stood up and everybody started to clap. And then I come back to England. <laughs> it's like so much effort, isn't it, to put your hands together and take your head from your laptop or your phone and to just do that. It takes so much effort. But what I've noticed very often, often in an audience is I do see some adults go like this. They go to clap and they notice the individual to the left or to the right's not got the same energy and they style it out and just do this. <laughs> Have you noticed that? And what I notice, I've worked with 60,000 young people now all over England, uh, young people from four to 18. And when I walk into a primary school, as I stand there and I say to the children, who'd like to ask me a question? You get 250 kids put their hand up. And then all of a sudden as we get older, we may have been laughed at once or twice by somebody else in the classroom, and then we become adults that may have a lot to say, just not brave enough to do so. Does that make sense? Just put your hand up if you can ever remember at school, putting your hand up and potentially not getting the answer right. Did your friends, put your hand up if your friends went, do you know what, don't worry about that, great effort. <laughs> or did your mates look at you and go, raise your hand if it was number one. Raise your hand if it was number two. And what happens once we put our hand up and we get the answer not exactly correct, what happens the second time? The hand stays down. And then the person sat next to you, they put the hand up, they give the correct answer and you go, I knew that. But he gets all the accolade. Does that make sense? So we're going to have a little bit of energy before we start because my job today is not just to create an environment for you to learn from, but to set the scene for the whole day because... I honestly believe everybody in this room has got the potential to go wherever they want to go. And I'm so fortunate today and proud to be here for the second time. Because anybody can get a gig first time. Anybody. If your marketing is good, you'll definitely get loads of one-offs. But when you get invited back for the second time, that hopefully says that you did something decent last time or they're struggling for people. <laughs> I'll choose the first one. In fact, I was in the toilet just then and a guy said to me, back again. So I could have gone two ways, I'm thinking... It was you, weren't it? My friend there. Put your hand up. What's your name? John. So John goes back again, and I'm like, full of pack. I'm like, yeah. And he didn't go, for God's sake. He was like, brilliant. And we got talking. And what was really interesting, he told me something that I did last time that I totally forgot I'd done. 
because I've never ever delivered a speech where I've stuck to the script, as you can probably tell. I've got about 20 slides there and I probably won't use any. Because I speak from here and I live from here. I speak from the heart and I live from the heart. So today I'm going to take you on a journey. I want you to start where you are now. I want you to notice the mood you're in and hopefully feel and see how you are by the end of my talk. And hopefully I've improved it. And me and John will do a right said Fred act right at the end. Because look at us both. For those that, just stand up, John. Give John a round of applause. Let's go. So today I'm going to talk about culture and purpose and people. Because quite often I walk into a corporate organisation and it's very corporate. And that's the opposite to what I am, but that doesn't mean I can't add value to that kind of setup. I'm on the train about six or seven months ago, and I run and I jump onto the train. Oh, that's me, by the way. I forgot about that slide. Someone once said to me, if you show a slide of you as a kid, everyone likes you from the off. <laughs> Look at that. That was a photo of me as about a three-year-old kid with a dream to become a professional sportsman. Little did I know from that photograph, it would take me to places I'd never have dreamed of. And, and today to be here in front of you, this is bigger than any achievement for me, than any sporting achievement. For me to be from where I'm from, to be stood here is very, is very proud for me to be. I always remember my mum, as a kid growing up at that kind of age and upwards, she used to say one thing to me, whatever you do, son, do not live your life like me and your dad. Do not live your life like me and your dad. Go for more, strive for more, be more, be brave. So today I'm going to be brave and share as much as I can in the time that I've got. I'll give you everything that I've got in this two-hour slot that they've given me that they don't know about. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you everything I've got. Just before I go into the next phase, what we're going to do, I'm going to walk back on stage, because this is fucking brilliant on my Instagram. And Paul will be filming, won't you, Paul? You ready? So I'm going to walk back on stage, and you're going to clap, stand up, clap, get some energy into your body, and then we're going to go all in. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, come on, let's go! Thank you. I get on a train, I live in Redford in Nottinghamshire, I jump on the train, and um, there was no seats available, and I'm travelling to Manchester. So as I get on the train, it reminded me of that kid that used to get on the train to go to football trials that couldn't afford the fees, so I used to hide in the toilet, hide underneath the table, and if there was a group of us, we used to take it in turns. If there was four at a table, the fourth person used to hide under it, and three of us would cover him, so he got the ticket for free. So I get on the train, there's no seats, and I had got a ticket. So I take a seat on the floor, as you can see behind me there. This little boy, I bet he was 14 to 15 years of age, he comes up and he runs and he jumps over my legs just to get on the train. Now, as he gets on the train, the conductor comes round and the conductor starts to ask for everybody's ticket. As the conductor's asking for everybody's ticket, there's a businessman, I think you can see his shoes just in the corner. And he's got this nice Rolex on, he's got his briefcase, he's looking very fly, beautiful suit. And as he stood there, the conductor goes to the businessman and says, have you got your ticket, sir? He says, I'm not buying a ticket. He said, what do you mean? He said, I haven't got a seat. He said, you still need to buy a ticket, sir. I'm really sorry because everybody on the train needs, needs a ticket or she won't be able to get off. I am not buying a ticket until you find me a seat. So straight away, my headphones come off and I look up at this guy and that got me a little bit because I don't like that kind of behaviour. And I looked at him and this little guy, about 65 years of age, a conductor, is pleading with the gentleman to buy the ticket. 
He said, I'm not buying a ticket until you find me a seat. So the little old guy who's trying to get the ticket, shaking a little bit, he turns and he starts to walk off. As he walks off, just to the right-hand side of him, you can't see him in the picture, this 13, 14, 15-year-old boy, he says, Mr. Conductor. And the conductor can't hear him because he's working his way down the train. He says, Mr. Conductor. And the conductor turns around and says, what? He said, can you come here, please? So the conductor comes walking back to the little boy. As he gets to the little boy, he stands there and he says, I need to buy a ticket. And it makes me emotional saying it because the kid had nothing. And he stood there and he says, I need to buy a ticket. And the conductor looks around and he goes, don't worry about it. He said, nobody will ever know. He said, I'd have never known if you hadn't shouted at me. He said, but I would have. He said, but I would have. He said, I want to buy a ticket. So he goes, it's £60. So as this is happening, the businessman now gets off the phone to his PA. What an idiot. Why haven't you got me a seat booked? He's ranting down the phone to his PA. He's got lost in the corporate world. And he stood there looking flying. He's shouting down the phone to his personal assistant. And I bet she's on the other end of the phone just doing that, isn't she? <laughs> Let's be honest, she's not going to be really feeling sorry for this guy. So he hears the little boy asking for the ticket. He puts the phone down, he looks at the boy, and the boy starts to go into his pocket looking for coins and cash. And the conductor stood there trying to get this frantically busy train. And the businessman looks at the conductor and says, excuse me, stop. He takes out his bank card, he says, I'll pay for his ticket, and I'll pay for my ticket. And he gives him the ticket, the conductor turns and he walks off. And the guy, the corporate guy, looks at the boy and he shakes his hand and says, thank you. He said, I used to be like you. I used to be like you. And the conductor walks off, we get to Manchester and we get off the train and the boy goes on his way. Because once upon a time we was like that. And then we go sometimes into the corporate world and we allow it to shift our behaviour because of the environment that we're in. Now every single one of you, in fact just put your hand up if you own a business, just put your hand up if you own a business. Put your hand up if you work within one. Put your hand up if you would like to own one, if you sat next to your boss maybe keep your hand down. <laughs> Put your hand up if you would like to own one. Put it up. Don't be like, let's put your hand up. If you put your hand up, let's put your hand up. Cool. Often I see people go into an organisation, into the corporate world, full of energy, full of passion, full of desire, full of a want for more from life. Then what happens is they go into an environment that they allow it to detract from who they are as an individual. And they, they, then they blame the organisation and the culture for their behaviour. Does that make sense? Quite often you see adults behaving like children because they're in an environment where it's about me, myself and I. It's not about me and you together. Perfect example, an organisation I work with are striving to turn over £250 million a year. Imagine if they changed it from we're striving to turn over £250 million a year to we're trying to, we're trying to help 500,000 people per year. Imagine the difference of how that sounds, how that looks. And today, Mark said to me, could you do a spin on your talk more about marketing? And the reason my first slide said our people are powerful beyond measure because there's no better marketing tool than the individuals within your company. They're the best marketing tool you can have, ever have. What's the point having a shiny brochure if the heart of the organisation isn't lived by the people? You've probably noticed to my right-hand side, to your left, is an old football boot there. That's the same football boot I wore as a kid at the age of eight, and I carry, with, carry that with me wherever I go. It's got holes in with black masking tape wrapped around to keep the water out. 
Because remembering our upbringing and our values and our beliefs of who we are is vital when we step into an organisation because we can't change the organisational culture, but we certainly can make sure that we don't lose our way within the organisational culture. Does that make sense? I walked into a school recently and... I have a script when I go into a primary school. I have a talk that I do in this primary school. And I walked in, and I'd been there two years prior. And I walk into this primary school, and as I walk in, this little boy looks at me, and bearing in mind, I've got the football boot there, and I'm just about to deliver a speech. As I'm about to deliver a speech, he looks at me and he goes, I remember you. And I'm like, okay, when from? He said, you came here a few years ago, didn't you? I said, yeah. I did, and I'm thinking, I hope you can't remember what I'm about to talk about, because this is all I've got to talk about right now. And I'm stood there, and he looks at me, 250 kids. He said, you told us a story about a football boot with holes in, but your dad didn't have the money to buy you new ones, so he, knew, he used black masking tape. That's what I asked my dad to do now, Luke. I'm like, brilliant. I said, can you remember anything else I talked about? He said, yeah. <laughs> I said, what else can you remember? He said, you showed us a photograph of you kicking a ball when you was a little boy. And then you told us about you went to Wembley Stadium at the age of eight years of age to watch England play. And your headmaster stood beside you and he said six words that totally changed and transformed your life. <laughs> and I'm like, what was the words? He went, oh, I can't remember. So it was something like, that could be. And so I went, you one day. I'm like, this is, I'm in trouble. <laughs> as amazing as it was... As amazing as it was, I'm stood there and said, okay, come to the front, young man. He comes to the front. I said, tell everybody what else you can remember. And I stood back thinking of what else to talk about. <laughs> and three days ago, I said to Emily, just out of interest at Digital 22, is anybody going to be there that was there last time? She went, yeah, about 60%. I was like, right, I better go back to the drawing board then. Oh, this is going to be a lot of Johns going, are you back here again? Because I want to be back here for the third time, for the fourth time, for the fifth time. Now, as I'm stood there and that kid comes to the front, something clicked right in my mind. The power of what? The power of people. The power of telling a what? Story. I want you to write this down as a title on your page, okay? What's my story? Just write this down. Hopefully, you've all got pens and paper. What's my story? Just write this down, guys. What's my story? What's my story? Put your hand up if you've got a story. Put your hand right up if you've got a story. Let's have a look. Put your hand up if you've got a story. Has anybody on that table got a story? Every, who said that? Good girl. What did you say? Everyone's got a story. We all have a story. Our success is defined by what we do with it. Our success is defined by what we do with it. Okay, so what's my story? Underneath that, I just want you to write down three words that you would use to define you as an individual. Three words that would use to define you as an individual. Go. Three characteristics, three attributes, three words. Three characteristics, three attributes, three words that come to your head that describe you about your story or about how you are, who you are as an individual. Just three words, three characteristics. Just put your hand right up in the air when you've done that so I can see that we've all done. Just put your hand up when you've done that. Three words, three characteristics, three attributes. Okay, who will just share one of them? Luke? 
kid, tell me what you mean, Luke. Uh, for anyone who knows me, I act like a five-year-old. Like, Brilliant. Definitely. So you focus on the child within. Yeah. yeah. Put your hand up if you loved being a child. Put your hand up if at times you still like to behave like one. Yeah, definitely. Who'd share one? Who'd share one? Who'd share a word that they've written down? Just place it, put your hand up. John? Perseverance. Passionate. That's what you'd use to describe you. I learned something really good in Australia in December. A lady used the word passion, and she said, do you know what passion means? And we was like, well, yeah, energy and, and all that. And she went, this is what I think it means, and she did this. She wrote the word. What do you think that means? Give that young man a round of applause. Well done. Give him a round of applause. The lady said, wherever you go, you've got an opportunity to pass a bit of you on. And passion, passionate. Wherever you go, it can be infectious or not. Anybody else share one of theirs? Someone from that table, guys, just because you're right out my sight. Look at your mate elbowing you. She's like, you do it. Pardon? Relax, that's good. Someone from this table? Friendly? Creative? Caring? Honest? Someone from that table to shout a word? Driven? Brilliant. Back table, please. Curious. We've had kid. Loyal. Anything else from the guys watching? Accountable. Team player. Now, I walk into an organisation two weeks ago. They're in 195 cities in 40 countries. And we booked a room to do a seminar. But two guys chosen to eat their dinner in there. And they've got the laptops out. So the guy who's taking me in knocks on the door. He says, excuse me, guys, we've booked this room. And the two guys goes, have you? He says, yeah, yeah, we've booked it. We've got a seminar. The guy said, are you sure you've booked it? He said, yeah, I've booked it. I've definitely booked it. He said, do you mind telling me under what name and who you booked it with? What is that guy showing towards him? Offensive? What's the lack of? Respect? Who said that? Trust. Okay, cool. So, write this word down, guys. Feel free to copy this if you want to. So I want you to put yourself in one of these categories that I'm going to do now. I took this exercise from a brilliant expert in leadership, which is Simon Sinek. And he talked about when he worked with the Navy SEALs. What, what is it about them guys that they select them on? Why do they select these people? Wait till I've got going. You've taken it. You've ruined my whole thing. That's 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Great answer. They would choose trust over? Fantastic. So, often in organisations, you may be able to relate to this, you get a lot of this up here, which is high performance and low trust. You can probably think of loads. People that perform really well, but actually, would you trust them if they took your wife out for a drink? <laughs> it's a big question. It's a big question. 
Now, the individual that none of us want to be, or certainly have on our teams, is the low performer with low trust. They're just not an asset to anybody. And I don't think anybody wants to be that kind of guy. Okay? Now, what you've got over here is medium performance and high trust, low performance, high trust, and up here, you've got the ultimate individual, high performance, high trust. Now, I want you to look at that chart. So you've got high performance, low trust, low performance, low trust, high performance, high trust, medium performance, high trust, and low performance, high trust. Just have a look at it and just put a little dot where you think you live at the moment. And what I mean by that is not that you take your mate's wife out for dinner and don't take her home on time. Not that kind of trust. Are you trustworthy? That phone rings, you don't go, do you know what, I've got to get out of the room. Are you going all in or are you actually just taking your foot off the gas a little bit because you become a little bit institutionalised and demoralised with the company or the culture that you're in? Where do you live? Just put a little spot or a dot where you live. And I want to think about the companies that you own or the companies you work within and I want you to be very honest and I want you to put a percentage of people of what you feel live here in this box here. What percentage of people in your organisation do you feel perform really high but actually they're a little bit in it for themselves? They're a little bit in it for themselves, not for the team. And what kind of individual, how, what percentage have you got over here of a high performance, high trusting individual? Now, that's where we'd all love to be, but are we honestly in there? We maybe are. Hopefully, your companies have got a biggest percentage over here. But most companies that I work with, their biggest percentage is, unfortunately, when they're very true and honest, is, do you know what? We've got loads of high performers that smashing the figures out of the park. Could we trust them if a company came in with a better deal to not go? I'm not so sure. Okay, so just put a percentage of what you feel your people are in. Now, what happens in the organisations that I work within around this is guess which area is incentivised, and I'm generalising, guess which area is incentivised more often than not? Which area? Performance. So an individual comes into your business, you talk about performance statistics. Some do, others, I know. I'm generalising. Okay? But often it's about performance. Now, if individuals absolutely flying and doing really well, we focus on performance and we recognise this person here. They get on a stage, they get awards, they get bonuses, they get trips on holiday, they get loads of perks. But you've got this guy here, which the Navy SEALs, by the way, the Navy SEALs say they'd rather have this person and more often than not this person than this person every day of the week because when the bullets are flying, this guy will jump in front of one and when these are flying, he'll hide behind me. So I trust this guy implicitly. Does that make sense? So they prefer to have this kind of person than this kind of person, yet we recognise this with awards, money and everything. Put your hand up if you can relate to that. I'm not saying you do it as a business. Just put your hand up if you can relate to that kind of structure and culture within an organisation. Usually the top salesman is the one that earns the most money, quite often. Now imagine a world where... We incentivise people for showing trust and togetherness. And rather than giving someone a cheque of a bonus for doing really well, we let them go and watch their children at sports day. We let them go and spend a day a month working with a charity to come back and express what a great day they had working and giving back to the community. Guess what kind of individual you're starting to create then? 
What kind of individual are you starting to create? Someone that's happy, loyal, more trustworthy. And guess what happens to their performance when they feel like that? It goes high, it improves, it gets better. But we often think monetizing excellence is the way forward, but it's not. Because that kind of individual will move on for more money at the click of a fingers. Look at Digital 22 for a great example. Started in a bedroom above a post office. And now you've got 42 members of staff putting on events like this, bringing like-minded people together. And when you walk around their environment, people are happy, loyal. The, the morals are there, the principles are there, the values are there. Now you can probably see behind me, it's going to go. What team's that? We're going to do the hacker. <laughs> shit, Luke says shit. I don't know it, so we can't do it. What words come to mind when you look at them? No dickheads. No dickheads. Brilliant. One of their principles, one of their values, it says on their website is no dickheads. They just don't allow dickheads in their environment. We've all got plenty of them, and I know that. Okay, it's how to make sure we don't what? Be one, who said that? Well done, how we don't become one. The most formidable organisation of all time, the most formidable organisation with less people because their culture is born on what? Respect, trust, loyalty. One of their values is called cleaning the sheds. After every game, guess what they do? They sweep the floors, brilliant. They sweep the floors. Richie McCaw, 130 plus caps for his country. He says, you're going to do that, you're going to do the bins, you're going to mop, and you're going to tidy. Guess what happens? I'm not trying to do this to help us tidy up for Digital 22 either, by the way. <laughs> but guess what happens when we're in a meeting often in a room? What do we do? Often, we see. We just leave the cups for somebody else to sort out. The hotel room that I slept in last night, I've got this crazy thing, I tidy it as if I've just entered it. Because my mum was a school cleaner and she was a cook. So I know my mum used to have to walk into environments that she had to tidy up. So I've got a reason to make that bed. Even though they're going to strip it, it'd probably be better stripping it, wouldn't it? But I want it to look tidy when that lady or that guy walks in to make that room a better place. Because they might smile and go, wow, somebody's thought of me. The most formidable organisation of all time. Yet how come do you think more common than not in businesses, it's the opposite to that? Why do we think that is? Money. What do they play for? The pride of what? The country? The jersey? They play for a purpose. What does purpose mean? A common goal within the organisation with yourself. Put your hand up if you know your organisation's purpose. If you know it. If you could literally stand there and reel it off. Yeah, is it your company? Yeah, it's a good job you know it. I love it, Luke. It's a good job. Is it your company? It's your company. Why do they know it? Why do they know it? Because it's theirs. Now imagine the power of telling your story to your people. Imagine the power when they all buy into the same purpose and the same cause as you. What do you start to look like? Not 15 aggressive guys but you'll become like an all-blacks culture. I want to show you a little video now, and this is how they talk about their organisation, their culture. This is how they talk about the people within it. 
And I want you to relate that to what do you do when you get up in the morning? What do you stand for as you sat there? What kind of person do you want to be known for? When you pull on your jersey in the morning, who are you representing other than just yourself? Who's the person that's made sacrifices for you to be sat where you sat looking as good as you do? Who's the person, when you was like me, kicking a ball, that dedicated their time, effort and love to you to give you an opportunity to be where you are today? Who's the one that you're doing it for other than just yourself? Can we press play on the video, please? Children growing up aspire to be All Blacks. Oh, I think it's uh, the heart and soul of New Zealand. I know how much the team meant when I was six years old, getting up in the middle of the night to watch the All Blacks play. When they're in the All Black team, they've been passed on the responsibility of that black jersey with the silver fern. It's their time, it's their time in that jersey, and it's their responsibility to enhance the legacy. Oh, better men make better All Blacks. That's really about self-improvement. And it's not only about rugby, it's about life. Young men driving together to produce something that they're proud of. I think it just encompasses that idea of you can always be better, whether it's off the field or on the field, and if you have that characteristic, then you'll be a great All Black. Good people make great teams, and people that uh, aren't very nice Although they might be superstars, we don't want them. It's about sustaining a culture of success. Week in, week out, year in, year out. Big, best team in the world, that's our goal. If you recognise how much of an honour it is to pull on that the black jersey, then the jersey will let you do things that you wouldn't have thought possible. As All Blacks, you're expected to win. any advantage to the market? Without question. It's about going to battle with your friends and your mates, standing shoulder to shoulder. It's not only about playing great rugby on the rugby field, it's about how these young men conduct themselves off the pitch. That humbleness, keeping your feet on the ground, realising that you can get better all the time. The legacy of the jersey is more intimidating than any opposition. And the key thing for us as past All Blacks is to make sure that legacy continues. I'm just very grateful that I got to spend as many years playing, you know, for a team that I loved. You know, the last hundred years, the All Blacks are the most successful sporting team ever. And long may that continue. Just put your hand up if you'd like to be in that culture. Just put your hand up if you'd like to be a part of a culture that stood for something greater than just me, myself and I. Amazing. What's, what I love about that is everybody always says, I would love to be. Now, where do you start? 
Where does it start? Yourself. You have to do it yourself. And what I find a lot in organisations is people detract from who they are because of where they are. And that can just never happen. Because if it does, you just become another number and a statistic. And you look back on your career and go, was that it? So to stand for more than just yourself is a real powerful emotional leverage to have on yourself to make sure you put more in. I'm going to read this poem. Put your hand up if you like poetry. <laughs> Probably not the best room to read a poem. About five people. This is, the reason I read this poem is I did a tour recently for a company that got 3,500 team members and I spoke to 800 of their people across a six-week period and four people out of the 800 actually put their hand up and said they wanted to be there at the beginning. Hopefully some left and enjoyed it, but four people out of 800 wanted to be there. For whatever reason it was, they didn't want to be there because the organisation, bearing in mind, the organisation are paying me to go in and paying them for their time to be sat there and they didn't want to be there. Why do you think they didn't want to be there? Took them away from their work. Didn't think it would be beneficial. Does anybody like to be told what to do? Put your hand up if you like to be told what to do. They was told they had to be there at 9am. Straight away, people walked in so mad. So I realised quick, I've got to try and shift their mindset. I'm going to read this poem. It's by a lady called Valerie Cox, and it's called The Cookie Thief. And for me, it really describes really well about as we, as we get older sometimes, going from that primary school kid at four and five that puts his hand up, that behaves like a child that's full of energy, starts to become a little bit narrow-minded with their thinking, and it affects our performance and our trust. A woman was sitting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shops, bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man sitting beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. So she munched the cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irate as the minutes tickled by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I would blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only there was one left, she wondered what would he do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also so rude. Why he hasn't even shown any gratitude? She boarded the plane and sank in her seat. Then she sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was the cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned in despair. The others were his and he tried to share. Too late to apologise, she realised with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. Just write down one message that you took from that poem real quick. Just write down one message that you took from that poem just real quick. The first thing that came to your mind. You might relate it to something that you did last night, this morning. My keys was on that table. My keys was definitely on that table. Well, they're not on the table, so you must have moved. You've moved them. What about when the email comes through and you start to type angrily and you want to send it and we've got it wrong? Put your hand up if you've ever got a situation wrong. <laughs> so, look. 
The glasses that we look through depends on what we see. Sometimes taking a step back between the stimulus and the response and creating that space to think about a result and our outcome is where the magic lives. Very often, especially in the corporate world, I see people so ego-driven, I did that, you said you would do that, you haven't done this. And actually, we're not looking at ourselves first. I hope you've enjoyed all that I've given you for the last 30 to 35 minutes. I've had a great time speaking to you. Thanks to John for getting up. We won't do the right, said Fred. Thanks for your time, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.